Welcome to the first part of our two-part special episode, Practice Saver to Practice Builder, Telehealth in Eye Care. We're glad you've joined us for this discussion entitled Finding Synergies. Doctors Rania Habash and Damon Dierker will speak with colleagues Drs. Brianna Rue and Blake Williamson about clinical and practice barriers with telehealth, co-management best practices, and common telehealth misconceptions. This podcast is supported with advertising by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. The opinions and views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and are not necessarily those of Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation or its affiliates. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to part two of our webinar event, Practice Saver to Practice Builder, Telehealth in Eye Care, Finding Synergies. We'd like to thank Novartis for supporting this program. And to our audience, please feel free to submit questions throughout the program via the Q&A field at the bottom of your screen. We'll address them at the end of the program. This should be a really lively discussion. And we have three really amazing um, co-panelists with me. So Damon Durker, um, you're gonna be a co-moderator. And of course we have the great uh, Brianna Rue and Blake Williamson joining us as well. So we should have a really good sort of, you know, fireside chat and we'll talk about a lot of interesting things and also um, really interestingly what what sets this program apart from others is that we're going to talk about the ophthalmology optometry relationship in terms of telehealth and how we can make use of uh, you know working together so with that let's get started you know one of the things i wanted to talk about first probably is um, let's talk a little bit about the optometry ophthalmology relationship. Let's just start right there. Um, are you guys co-managing via telehealth? Brianna, do you wanna start us off? Sure. I'm excited to be here this evening. So thank you Novartis for having us at BMC. Um, the, I think we can really use this for co-management in specific ways when it comes to cataract referrals, when it comes to LASIK referrals, where we don't really, we can do all of the pre data screening um, with all of the testing that we can do, and then refer them to you guys to have this telemedicine conference before the patient goes in. And I think it actually, it takes the patient away from having that bedside manner or being scared in the chair to really release them so they can have a better conversation of what's best for the patient, especially when it comes to things like LensX or laser-assisted cataract surgery and updating lens implants. So you can have both family members there because I know we're limiting family members into the chair. And so we know patients only remember what 30% of what you say. And then when we go into these higher forms of cataract surgery, especially you're gonna derail yourself because now they're gonna go home and have to talk to their um, the loved one who's now saying you went in for a procedure that was gonna be covered and now you're telling me it's you know, a $6,000 bill. So where did we go wrong in this conversation? So I think we really can get good at the data collection and then using telemedicine in that manner for co-management. So that's how we've been using it. I think that is such a great segue to this entire discussion um, because 
probably one of our um, best visits, and Blake, you can probably uh, agree with it with me on this, is um, the refractive counseling and um, multifocal IOL talks that we have with patients from home. And that's been really great because exactly like what you said, they're sitting at home and they've got their family members with them. They feel more comfortable. Um, you know, someone says, a lot of patients actually say that it's more personal than an in-person visit a lot of times. So what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. Um, Blake uh, and uh, Damon, you guys want to comment on that? Yeah, I think, uh, I think Sumitra was, uh, Candlewall was one of the first uh, doctors I heard actually say, you know what, this is actually more personal because uh, I'm unmasked, you know, and I hadn't really thought about that until she mentioned it. So I, I do think there's something to that, you know, for us, um, all the counseling, uh, for LASIK at least, and, and our other vision correction procedures that we do at Williams and I is all done virtually now. Um, and as a result of that, uh, our adoption rates for patients seeking vision correction procedures it has way out, outdone uh, 2019 and 2018 numbers as well. Um, so I, I think that that's been a huge piece. I think that, you know, patients, you know, enjoy the fact that on their own time, when they're comfortable, you know, from their, from their house or sometimes from their vehicle, pulled over on the side of the road, of course, uh, they get to have a chat with our counselors about, uh, you know, what, what, what different technologies exist to help them see better. On the co-management piece, um, you know, it's not something that I do yet, but it's certainly something I'm interested in. Right now, I have, uh, you know, seven different locations Williams and I, but we're looking at expanding even more. Uh, but some of these uh, outer lining areas are quite far. And so some, sometimes we'd be asking patients to drive almost an hour, um, you know, to, to come in for, for a simple conversation that we could have over a Zoom meeting like this. So um, it's something that, that my team and I are looking at very closely and anxious to hear uh, for, those, for those people who are doing it successfully. And we're not quite co-managing yet. I think we are definitely using this in the perioperative period very effectively, both with telephone calls and video visits. Uh, when we had the shutdown months ago and we weren't seeing them at all in the office, our surgeons did video visits to kind of reacclimate themselves uh, with the patient and get them ready for surgery. Now some of that is, is more telephone with our counselors. But I really see the opportunity here in these referral center settings and co-management relationships to have a patient in a chair, you know, 30, 60 minutes away from an office like Blake has or like I have, and we have a conversation with the patient and their optometrist, you know, and have a good conversation with the doctor who knows them best to be able to understand what's going on, what their goals are. So I think we're still scratching the surface on that. I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's just going to come down to logistics, and in some cases, you know, how how are people being compensated for this as well? And, and those things are evolving. So I'm I think that's exciting. I don't think we're we're just scratching the surface, though. Well, we um, so that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to um, actually launch into next was the reimbursement part. So you know, first of all, just to recap, you know, this one segment. We're talking about doing um, preoperative counseling visits via telehealth and having optometry do the measurements first and then we, and setting everything up and then we do the counseling part. But you guys touched on some really important things. Number one, the patient is more relaxed. Number two, they've got their family members with them. So they're actually comprehending the material a lot better and you know they get, they get to weigh in on it a lot more. Number three, we're developing a better relationship with them because they're essentially inviting us into their homes now rather than them coming into our offices. Number four, higher conversion rates. That is 
uncontested. Every single doctor you talk to will say the same thing, higher conversion rates when we do it this way. Um, and it's for all the reasons that we mentioned before. Now comes the last part. How do we tie that back into the optometry ophthalmology relationship? And um, Damon, you, you hit it perfectly. I mean, there, there are codes for doctor to doctor consults and they can be used between ophthalmology and optometry. So if you're in the same tax ID um, and you're using between you know, ophthalmologists, for instance, it wouldn't work on the same day, date of service. But between optometry and ophthalmology um, or between two different practices that have different tax ID numbers, you can use that. So the way it would work is this way. Let's say um, I wanted you to uh, do, I don't know, a multifocal contact lens fitting on a patient who I was thinking might be a good panoptics candidate, okay? Um, and I sent the patient to you or Brianna and I said, will you guys let them try out multifocals first or monovision or whatever, right? Um, to, to, to give us a little bit more information about whether or not they can tolerate that. Well, guess what? I'm the referring physician in that situation. And I would write a little note that says, discuss with patient, patient agrees, you know, for me to discuss with Dr. Durker, Dr. Rue, gave consent. Um, and then that's a, that's a billable service because I reached out to you for some information. Now you as the consulting physician would then send me a report back after you saw the patient. And that's a billable based on time type of visit. So that code would be, you know, based on how much time you spent preparing the report to me and talking, um, you know, letting me know the information. So it's actually a really good system because we were already doing all that, right? But we, we just weren't getting paid. <laughs> we were already doing it, but that's the logistics way to do it. You know, you just make a little encounter that says, hey, reach out to Dr. You know, Durker, patient accepted, um, or patient said, okay. And, you know, then you bill if you're the referring physician, the 99452 code. And then on the other end, if you're the consultant, you bill based on time and it's the 9944 codes. So 9944678 um, or nine, and they pay you know a pretty decent amount. So again, the thing to remember here is we were already doing this stuff for free. So, you know, it's not, you know, a huge addition to your practice, but you know, over time it builds up and uh, you know, in this day and age, we really, need to take advantage of these types of codes that are coming up. So I'm interested in, in how people are going to implement that on a wider level logistically, because we're all really busy. We're all having to deal with enhanced sanitation and PPE is how are we going to set up a, a consult where it's going to make sense for an optometrist to consult with maybe another optometrist or an ophthalmologist? How do we make that happen? What are you doing, Rania, right now in your practice to facilitate that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that actually. So um, there are two ways to go about this. Number one, if the patient is with you in the room, okay, that is um, one type of situation. So you could, you know, I could send you a text and say, hey, are you free to talk for a second? And then we could get you on the call, on a Zoom call and all talk together. The second scenario though, which is probably the, the more common one when we're talking about doctor to doctor consults is, you know, patients in my office and I say, you know what? I think the best thing for you is if you go see Dr. Durker and he does a multifocal contact lens fitting so you can try it out first or let's try monovision before we do it surgically. And so I'm gonna discuss it with him. Is that okay with you? Patient says, yes, that's awesome, thank you. And then we send them to you, you do your fitting, you send me a report, um, and then you build the ENM service plus the consultant code back to me. Got it, with patient consent. 
With, yeah, I have to document that I asked the patient, you know, you, you should always document patient consent, but you know, I always let the patient know, um, and they, they, re they really appreciate this. I mean, this is a huge service for them to get a second opinion or you know, um, another set of eyes looking at their situation. Well, like the way I see networking in your network? Yeah, the, you know, the way I see this working for, for, for us would be, you know, number one, I, I think that um, uh, I would have to have a dedicated time for that. And I know that we all have said that if you're gonna be doing telemedicine, uh, you know, it can't be on the fly. It needs to be, Hey, this hour is my, you know, of the day, whether it's the last hour of the day, uh, is dedicated to telemedicine. So I can kind of foresee a situation where like literally maybe the last, you know, 30 minutes or last hour of my day, maybe 30 minutes of my day is specifically devoted to, um, cataract consultations, uh, from referring optometrists. Right. And so, and, and, and on the, up on the OD level, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, you call the, the, the opt ophthalmologist to get them in for consult and, you know, they can't get them in for weeks, right? Two, three, four weeks uh, sometimes. So what if you had, what if you said, hey, you know, actually, if you can come back later today at the end of the day, you can actually meet with your surgeon today virtually. Like, I feel like that would be a good way, good way to kind of actually grow, um, you know, my co-management network. Uh, by being able to provide like same day consults, right? So I think that would be a very interesting way to do it. And, and literally the last 30 minutes, I'd just hop on uh, and, and, you know, we would have conversation just like this. And then I can see them uh, same day. Obviously, I want to take a look at the eye with a slit lamp, right? Um, so I would do that on the day of surgery, uh, you know, first thing, which I do already for some of our patients who travel from out of town. So that's how I th think it might work for us. So I think that's good. I just want to weigh in really quick here. So um, what I, I was talking about is actually an asynchronous type of visit. And that means the patient does not need to be there. So this is just us talking about a patient's case after hours on the drive home, whatever. Um, and the patient doesn't need to be there. So you don't need to allot specific time or anything. Does that make sense? So there's two ways of doing that. You can either do a formal one, like you're saying, Blake, which is an awesome idea. And then there's the informal ones, which happen 10,000 times a day anyway between us, where we just like curbside a buddy and ask or talk about a case. So those two are different options. What are you guys doing like the on one of our conversations where that one day post-op has not become that important? I mean, it still is important, but not as important as it once was, especially when we were during lockdown. I think it's important as the ODMD referrals get really, really synergistic here is to really use your referring physicians to do those visits because I think it's important as we move forward, we're gonna all, all get busier and busier as things are going on and we need our ophthalmologists to be available for those surgeries and you can use optometry in those ways better actually than I think what we're utilizing now for those one-day post-ops. How's it going? Um, are you guys now seeing your one-day post-ops still or are you kind of doing those virtually? So we are, our optometrists here at Bascom um, are, have been great. They're doing zero-day post-ops for the patients just to keep them from having to come back a second time. That has been a huge hit. And then they, you know, we look at their notes and I still call the patients at night, but at least then I have a pressure check, a vision, you know, all the, the basic stuff done. That's been incredible for us. Um, but I want to just um, let Blake kind of take this one. Blake has arguably the most famous video online about uh, <laughs> post-op day zero visits or post-op day one visits via telehealth. So please take it away, Blake. 
you know, my situation is, is, you know, we do a high volume of surgery. So often I'm doing between 30 and 40 cataract surgeries in a morning. And so before COVID, that means that I'd have 30 or 40, you know, patients in the waiting room uh, and that we would have to kind of churn through. Um, and it was taking up slots for, you know, patients who could be coming in for consults, right? So I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so that's what we did the one day post-op uh, virtually. And I thought about it. I, I consulted with a bunch of different colleagues and I was like, what, what are you really looking for in that one day FACO, uh, you know, uh, post-op? The biggest thing is the IOP spike. So I started checking pressure with a bare keratinometer before they left, right? We also give them a Diamox on the table and a Diamox uh, for, for that evening as well. Um, so I felt like I, I'm, I'm, you know, doing okay from an IOP perspective. Of course, any patient who is getting a MIGS procedure or a patient with glaucoma, we, I do see them uh, personally on day one. But I'm just talking about just, you know, cataract surgery only, no combination procedures. So IOP, you're not worried about. And then you're like, okay, well, what about TAS? I mean, gosh, that's so incredibly rare. But if they did have TAS, that should be something that you would see virtually whenever you see the eye. They'd say, I can't see well. My eye is red. My cornea is cloudy. You can actually make it out. So I'm not worried about TAS. You know, I guess you could be worried about maybe iris going to the wound or something like that. But then you'd see where they wouldn't have a round pupil. But when I'm looking at these patients, if they have a round pupil, a clear cornea, the eyes white and quiet, they're happy. Um, you know, uh, within seconds, you know, I've, I've completed that post-op exam. So I can do 30 plus post-op day one visits uh, in a matter of like 30 minutes, literally. So it's been a tremendous, tremendous boost uh, to our team in terms of efficiency. Uh, uh, you know, I come in uh, 30 minutes early, I knock those out, and then I, I begin my day. And I also like that connection because often I don't get to see those patients on the day of surgery because we're moving so fast. So they say, doc, I didn't even get a chance to see you. Like Rania, I do personally phone them that, that, that evening just for that personal touch. But I find the post-op day one adds another layer of that personal touch uh, to our system. So it's been great for us. So do you have four or five computers lined up and you just go up and down or how do you do in that logistically? I have two iPads and I have both of my gals that, that I work with closely on my team standing there and they literally are hitting like they're getting the patient on the screen and then they're handing them to me real time uh, one after the other so that there's no seconds wasted in between so literally we've got it down to like a like it's a wow. it's a cataract we've got it down to like a efficiency uh, science thing uh, but it's 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 been, it's been great we can see like a minute of it if you want because it is really a sight to see it's really worth it if you haven't seen it yet just think about the total number of hours that you're saving for you, your staff, your patient, and the patient's family that has to drive them in. I mean, literally, it's hours, hundreds of hours potentially, right? Depending yeah. on where the patients are coming from and how it affects their lives. So, I mean, if we can do this and do this in a way that is, is still safe for the patient, which I certainly think it is, yeah. I think that's really exciting. Anything that you're worried about, you'll see. A cornea abrasion, they're going to tell you, this hurts, you know, uh, you know task. They're not going to be able to see that. It's going to be red. You know, all those things, you know, uh, the, I just asked myself, you know, why don't, why, why do we have to see them on day one? I started thinking, uh, and as long as you have that video uh, and you get a good image, uh, I think I, I feel safe doing it. Yeah, here's the video here, Rania has it. <laughs> hey, it's Dr. Williamson here at Williamson Eye Center. I'm going to fast forward just a tiny bit. I did it like real time. All right. I love how you put on your coat here and make it all fish. <laughs> There's 30 so patients on the see, screen. Uh, oh, you're just like admitting them and then kicking them out of the waiting room. Are you 
in the, the, the virtual waiting room here. You can see all these Ah, people. got it. Virtual waiting room. That's right. They're all waiting for you. You're just bringing them in. I see it now. That makes sense. You're the very first one. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. How you doing? Everything okay? Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for uh, allowing me to share this with my colleagues to show them how to do telemedicine. Oz doing okay? Hey. No eye pain or anything? I'm sorry? No eye pain or anything? Oh, no. No okay. pain at all. Let me take a look at that eye that I did yesterday. Bring it real close to the camera, please. Good. I want you to look up and to the left. Right? Perfect. Fantastic. So everything looks good. So the cornea is nice and clear. The pupil is round. Everything looks excellent. You're doing very, very well. So I want you to continue to take all of your post-operative drops. And as long, okay. as, as long as you're doing well, we'll see you in clinic next week. Uh, they'll give you a call and let you know exactly what that's going to be. If you happen to have any uh, redness or loss of vision or eye pain or anything over the next three or four days, I do want you to come on in right away. But I don't expect that. I expect to see you at your normal scheduled appointment next week, okay? All right. Hey, how are you? <laughs> wow. I'm going to stop sharing nice. here. How phenomenal is that? Like, you know, we could explain it all day long, but then until you actually see, see Blake doing that, you can't really get it. I got to commend you on that. That's, that's really amazing. Thanks, Ronnie. I appreciate it. Yeah, so that was great to see. And I think it helps us to transition to the part two of the program, which is barriers. Because I could be the naysayer and say, you know, Blake, you, you, you're not checking there for cells. You can't see a little tiny piece of cortex there. Maybe there's a subtle wound leak that's going to be a problem in a day or two. Unlikely, but maybe there's something weird. You shouldn't be doing that. So I think there's a lot of you know, issues that we could propose as being a problem that really we find solutions for, or maybe it really isn't a big problem. Maybe we just need to rethink why are we doing that visit? But I have colleagues that, you know, I'm not gonna do telemedicine because I, I can't look at the cornea close enough or I can't do this or that. So I, I think that we really need to focus on what we can do. We know there's some things that we can't do and those are only gonna get better as the technology gets better as we get more acclimated to it, as we start doing these um, visits at home that are really remote monitoring patients with retina issues, glaucoma issues, I think all of the technology to allow us to do the things that we think we need to do is gonna be there eventually. I think there's so much we can do now that we don't even think about. Post-op visits, contact lens evaluations, dry eye follow-ups, triaging, there's so much we can do but the barriers, I think, are mostly self-inflicted wounds, right? It, it's, it's changing your, your protocol, changing what you think is the right way to do things. Oh, yeah, I have to do it like this, or my staff will never do this, or my patients won't ever accept that. It's, it's the change, the resistance on the provider end that I think is the biggest barrier in my mind. And I'm interested in what everyone thinks about that and what they're seeing in their practices and in their community. Well, I'll add to that part. I think that as technology is advancing, especially in health technology, so Rania and I, we've talked a little bit about it because I have my own app. I think that the we have to be the ones to take this and be the ones to innovate and to be the ones to do it, or there's going to be companies behind us that are going to come in and not do it right. So we have to be the leaders and the, forth, the forefront thinkers here to really move this forward, or we're going to be legislating against things that are really harmful for patients. 
So we know what's right and we know what we can do and we have to be the leaders to make that happen. And unfortunately, doctors, you know, we do kind of get stuck in our ways a little bit and we have to be the ones to stay in it with technology. It's here to stay, it's not going away. Things are gonna get better, like you said, Damon, but we can't put ourselves on the back burner here and let technology advance faster than us. And I think all of us that really in March took this by the horns and said, okay, it's here. How do I get on telemedicine? I think I would set my own telemedicine thing up in two minutes or less, had my first telemedicine visit when we shut down. We really just kind of got thrown to the wolves to do it. And so we all learned very, very quickly. It is possible in a lot of cases. Yeah, there's always going to be barriers, um, but we figured those out really, really fast. But I think it's important that we understand that we have to be the ones that are developing this technology because we can't let others come in and cut us out. So I think that's where people hold themselves back. Yeah, I think, um, I think that um, you know, a great sort of uh, analogy was the experience with transitioning to EMR, you know? Uh, it's similar. It's a, it's a foreign thing. It's a new thing that you had to kind of get used to. And, and like EMR, our, our, our experience with trans, uh, transitioning to EMR many years ago, uh, it was you know, sort of the older uh, physicians in the practice that were a bit more hesitant. Uh, and it's been similar with, with telemedicine as well. I, I think that um, if I were to offer you know, some feedback on what's that? that? I'm going to let you finish your thought, but I, I will counter that, what you just said about older people older physicians not uh, being able to adapt as fast. Oh, I'm just talking about my practice. I, I have no doubt that, there, that, that, that doesn't, that's not everywhere. But in our practice, that's been the way it is. But my feedback would be to counterbalance that would be to uh, just eat. You have to have a, a champion of it in your practice. No technology is going to take off, whether it's femtosecond lasers or trifocals or MIGs or dry eye. None of that's going to happen unless you have somebody who's a real believer and can actually prove it, right? So I think having a, someone listening to this saying, gosh, I don't know how I can get this started in my practice. Uh, you need to designate someone, hopefully yourself, uh, if you're watching this, uh, to be the leader of this charge. And number two, uh, if, you're not, you know, if you're not in control of your practice in terms of uh, from an ownership perspective and you're concerned about um, you know, uh, the, the partners allowing this, uh, they love the word pilot. Piloting anything is great. You know, if you can say, hey, you know what? You may have some reservations, but let me pilot this just for a little bit. And, and, and I think that you can kind of show them and prove uh, how successful you can be. Yeah, Brianna and I know though, it's, it's called death by pilot. <laughs> nothing ever happens. It just, um, okay, so going back to what I meant before about um, older physicians uh, not being as easily adaptable. So the reason I said that is because I think the older physicians have taken to telehealth a lot better than the younger ones. And here's why, and I want you guys to tell me what you think. This has just been my observation. So how many times have you all walked in and seen a resident um, sitting there at the computer typing away, the room lights are off, and they've missed something like, I don't know, Bell's palsy or um, cellulitis or something like that, because they have been so zoomed in on the corneal endothelial areas that they've forgotten to look at the patient. And this is where we get old school medicine, okay? This is where we're going back to old school medicine. Telehealth requires you to sit there and look at the patient and assess the patient as a whole and to let go of that thinking that you need every single element of the exam, 
you know, met because you don't with telemedicine, right? We're, we're not talking about billing based on, you know, every nuance of the exam or every part of the eye. We're talking about a global type of visit, which is more, you know, time-based um, billing or medical de decision management. But, um, you know, going back to that point, this is about sitting back and looking at the patient as a whole and doing more old school medicine. And because of that, I'm telling you, I've, I've seen that the older physicians seem to get it a lot better because they're used to doing this type of old school medicine. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I was interesting when we were during the lockdown in Indiana was about eight, nine weeks where we were just doing emergency care only. Our senior partner, um, prolific cataract surgeon, you know, we did a telehealth um, Zoom meeting to kind of talk about how we were going to implement this. And his final words was telemedicine is, is the future of eye care and it always will be. So he was, he was somewhat pessimistic as to whether or not this is actually going to happen. He was the first person in our practice to do virtual visits for all of his cataract consults when we're getting ready for surgery. So he, uh, he took it on and had great conversations and said, wow, I never had any idea this was so good. So he actually took the lead on it when he was the most pessimistic to start with. Blake, what do you think about that? I mean, I know, I know you have a great practice and you are used to kind of sitting back and having that relationship with the patient, but I just feel kids these days, you know, the residents that I see, I'm telling you, like they are just so focused because they have so much to do and to, you know, so many boxes to click that they forget to actually look at the patient. And I really do think that's, you know, where telemedicine um, diagnosis is, is much more important. Um, which is also another good segue into what we wanted to talk about, Damon, right? About what kinds of things can you, can, can you and can you not do with telehealth? And so we'll, let's do some rapid fire questioning. So let's pretend that you have a patient sitting in front of you and um, you know, it's just a virtual visit. You, you have no technology, you have nothing to examine them with, but you know, they start telling you they have flashing lights and floaters since last night, okay? So you ask them, do you have eye pain? No, I don't have any eye pain, um, but you know, here are my glasses and they're this thick, right? Or, oh, I got a bump on my head. That's telemedicine. And you're gonna bring them in and you're gonna look at that retina. So for the people who say there's no way you can assess flashes and floaters um, or retinal problems via telehealth, that's your answer. I mean, you are triaging that patient based on what they're saying, because you're listening to them. Yeah, and depending on how your practice works, I know we've all seen patients that come in with flashes and floaters, well, they're having a migraine and it took me 30 seconds of discussion with the patient to figure that out. And maybe they got on the phone with someone in my staff that's not as you know, well-trained at triaging those patients and the patient drove in, they're nervous wreck. The flashes are starting to wear off a little bit. They're starting to get a little bit of a headache. And I said, yeah, you have a migraine and we could have you know, saved them a lot of time, saved my staff a lot of time just by having that conversation. We determine, boy, they've got floaters, they've got you know flashes in their periphery. Yeah, you need to come in. And you know what? I already have the chief complaint. I already have the HBI. We've already started the encounter. Right. So when you come here, we're going to put some drops in. We're going to have, I'll be looking at your retina within 20 minutes of the time that you arrive in my office. They're going to have a better experience. And if I need to get them to a retina specialist, I'm expediting their care. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> that was very well said. Brianna, you look like you want to jump on that too. Go for it. But yeah, and it's the same thing. So if I, you know, Friday at four o'clock and that kind of comes in, why am I going to waste a visit for that patient if I know that it's got to be, you know, triaged out? 
And same thing as Damon said. So I think that's what we were triaging a lot um, with foreign bodies and those types of things. So yeah, do I need to see you or this can wait a little bit. So, you know, we all have our phones full of people that have texted us their pictures and what's wrong. And I think what we have to do is utilize our services and get paid for it. I think that's what this comes down to. And I think, Rania, when you're stating the younger to the older generation, uh, where we have a lot to protect, right? And I think that's where this gets a little nerve wracking is, are we going to be around in 10 or 15 or 20 years? So I think that's the apprehension a little bit. So if we can show people how to take care of their patients, how to get paid for it, like attorneys do for their time, right? That's essentially what we're doing here. Then we can get a lot more people on board. And I think that's where a lot of the apprehension comes from. So we have to get better at billing and coding. We have to get better at charging for our time um, and then collecting for it. So there's got to be some boundaries set between the doctor-patient relationship, which I think we've blurred those lines a lot, and we have to get them back. Excellent. You guys are so good. That was excellent. Blake, do you, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, the, the triage thing is something that, that we don't do enough of. You know, I feel like uh, at our practice specifically, um, you know, there's that Friday, you know, at 4.30, our front desk gets a call, you know, hey, I got something wrong with my eye, you know, can I please come in? And we don't know, that's all I hear. And, 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 and they say, well, you got, even though I'm done seeing my patients and I was about to go home, I'm sitting there waiting for 20, 30 minutes for the patient to come, they show up and it's the subcon team, you know? Right. So it's kind of like that, that, that type of stuff is, 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 is difficult. And even if it's not at the end of the day on a Friday, let's just say it's in the middle of a busy clinic schedule, Oftentimes, when you when you work that patient in for their emergency visit, you know I'll, that can bump someone who was was there for a, a cataract consult or a LASIK consult, and now they're spending more time in the waiting room. And you know, I, I just wish that there was some way for our practice to uh, look at doing, you know, having a, a, a on call person for you know triage telemedicine each day. You know, you do the triage for the whole practice that that one day and rotate it. I think that would be a really cool thing to do. So we're doing that at Bascom too. We started that service. It's um, kind of like an urgent care virtual clinic. And it started during the pandemic, but it's still going. And it's because, you know, our wait times in the ER are like four hours. And so, um, and to see one of us takes months. And so um, now when patients call in and they have an acute issue, they say, I'm losing vision or I have a red eye or my eye hurts or whatever. We send them into a queue where actually it's our optometrists who are manning this and they're doing a really great job with it. So they're doing the telemedicine visit. You know, we're capturing the revenue and they're getting that revenue. And 70% of the time they save the patient from having to come in. They were able to deal with those issues 70% of the time. The other 30%, exactly like you said, Damon, those patients were expedited because we found that it wasn't, you know, it was really new flashes and floaters and they did need to come in and they were expedited to a retina specialist instead. So that whole triage tree that we've been using has been incredibly successful. It's been saving patients from having to come in and wait. And then when they do call for an appointment, they're not getting that oh, your next available is six months. Now it's, you can have an appointment today um, and we're getting them dealt with really quickly and capturing all that revenue so they're not going to urgent care or other physicians or whatever. Thank you for tuning in to part one of our two-part special episode, Practice Saver to Practice Builder, Telehealth in Eye Care, Finding Synergies. 
please stay tuned for part two of this series where doctors Rania Habash, Damon Dierker, Brianna Rue, and Blake Williamson conclude their conversation by debunking some common telehealth misconceptions and addressable barriers, as well as hosting a question and answer session. This podcast was supported with advertising by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. The opinions and views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and are not necessarily those of Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation or its affiliates.